Saturday morning. Time for another wine chat with our friend Jack Farrow from Haskell's. Good morning, Jack. Morning, Denny. How are you this fine day? I am doing quite well. I was thinking actually about uh, some chili tonight, and uh, and I was thinking maybe a Malbec or a Zin. I'd say Zin with chili. Okay, very good. But that is uh, my personal opinion. They'd both be pretty good. Right. See, I had an interesting phone call today. They're doing a history of the wine business in the United States. And they called me early in the week, and they interviewed me for several hours, <clears throat> I guess because I've been around so long. But anyway, I thought I might share some of uh, that stuff with our listeners. I thought it was kind of interesting, and they thought it was obviously interesting. You know, Prohibition was a horrible social experiment that failed terribly. You know, it, uh, it didn't eliminate liquor. It made it harder to get it created mobs, etc., uh, made you know, ordinary people break the law, etc. It was a, a very bad thing. And, of course, it took forever to come about. It wasn't really unto itself uh, would have passed the wets and the dries. The wets were people that were in favor of prohibition. The dries, obviously, were for prohibition. But <clears throat> Peculiar Alliance, the suffragettes, because they were lobbying for the vote at the time in 1919, agreed if they would help the Dries, would the Dries help them get the vote? And they formed an alliance, and and they and it worked. Uh, prohibition passed, and a year after Prohibition passed, uh, the suffragettes achieved their objective. And Prohibition lasted a really long time. Uh, it was 14 years, from 1919 to 1933, with absolutely uh, no uh, hard spirits, beer, wine, theoretically allowed in the United States. However, there was a clause in the uh, uh, amendment that brought about prohibition that the uh, women, or I'm sorry, that people in their homes could make beer and wine, and it's, but you could only make a 150 or 250 gallons, something like that, which would be plenty for a small. And, you know, right after Prohibition, nobody, nobody <coughs> drank anything but liquor. Uh, wine was sort of neglected. And it wasn't until, you know, in our state, for example, Benny Haskell was a bootlegger, and he supplied the spiritual needs of the silk stocking set of the Twin Cities in those days. So, but he was caught. So he was a convicted felon, and it wasn't until 1963 that he got a presidential pardon and his name was cleared. But meanwhile, he couldn't operate a liquor store. It had to be in his wife's name. And Fritzie Haskell said to him, well, what am I going to do while you're selling all your buddies liquor? She said, he said to Fritzie, well, why don't you go and buy some wine and sell wine? So Fritzi went off to Europe and brought the very first container of French wine into the United States, came to Minnesota. And uh, it was very remarkable. that With the rest of the country drinking gin fizzes, Fritzi had folks here uh, drinking uh, wines. Uh, the, and another interesting thing is, and I always tell this about Prohibition, prior to Prohibition, pre-1919, Irish whiskey outsold Scotch whiskey in the United States about 85 to 1. After Prohibition, the reverse happened. Jo old Joe Kennedy had several boats in New York Harbor full of Scotch whiskey at the end of repeal. And he brought that Scotch into New York City 
and the whole East Coast. And, of course, everyone started to drink scotch and liking it. And it wasn't really till a few years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago, that Irish whiskey started to grow again. And as a matter of fact, it went from two distilleries in Ireland to today. There's 26 of them, and that's only in the last 20 years. Uh, so Irish whiskey made a huge comeback and is even making that now. Uh, but anyhow, back to uh, Fritzi in the container of wine. She had everybody uh, drinking wine at the table, and that was kind of interesting because in those days, the only ones that drank wine were effete snobs or poor immigrants. And, you know, our history in this state with poor immigrants, uh, Robert Mondavi's father, they were iron rangers, went out to California to pick up these what they were called was grape blocks. They dried grapes like tea blocks almost, and then they'd bring them back, they'd dump them in a big vat with water and reconstitute them and then make wine out of that. And uh, it didn't take him very long to discover California's climate was a lot nicer uh, than Virginia, Minnesota's climate. And he stayed out there and went on to found uh, the Mondavi Winery uh, and also uh, Krug Wineries uh, were his and uh, C.K. Mondavi. But anyhow... uh, the our aspect here uh, was getting people into wine, and it was a, a terrific time. And Fritzi was very knowledgeable. As a matter of fact, she was just this year elected into the uh, posthumously, of course, was elected to the Minnesota Business Woman's Hall of Fame because she really did move the Twin Cities around into absorbing wine as part of a table beverage. She talked about cooking with wine. She talked about drinking wine. One of our leading citizens told me a funny story about his father came into Haskell's and Fritzy, he wanted to get a very expensive bottle of wine. She wouldn't sell it to him. She said, your palate's not ready. And she went around and loaded up a little shopping cart with about 15 different half bottles of wine. She said, make notes on all these and then come back and see me. And finally, about four months later, she let him buy that expensive bottle of wine. And he said it was one of the proudest days of his life that he was able to do that. But that's how she operated. And, of course, in doing that, she began to educate people about wine. And, you know, the wine business when I started was much different than it is today. You know, California jugs dominated the California market. It was very hard to get good California wine. Of course, they made some. But they, it wasn't as available as it is today. And I can remember my first trips to different countries. I went to Chile once in the mid-'70s, and all the white wines were matterized. Matterized means they were all had oxygen in them or brown and tasted awful. And I said, these wines are matterized. Well, that's how we like to drink them here. Well, today, if you went to Chile, you couldn't find a bottle of matterized wine unless it accidentally went matterized. Today technology has white wines all over the world crisp and dry and easily presented in fact i was i when i was just in burgundy i was talking to a winemaker today it's very hard to make bad white wine simply because the technology is so that you can adjust for almost everything and come up with some pretty good wine but like i said it wasn't always that way i bought a container of wine once in Orvieto, Italy, and it was so delicious. I couldn't wait till it got here. It got here. It was just awful. I said to them, what did you do to this? They said, well, we put it on the roof 
in glass carboys for a couple weeks at the end. It's part of our finishing. And, of course, in doing that finishing, they had a white wine that tasted almost like sherry. We had to destroy it all. It was not drinkable. But they thought that was good. And Minnesota also had another good connection with it is Frank Sunmacher, who was one of the early advocates of labeling wine varietally, like they do in California today, Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel. You know, they used to have names like Burgundy, uh, Claret, etc. Not, not the varietal on the label. And Frank Sunmacher really pushed for that. In fact, he had one of the best palates I ever remember. Another, uh, and Pills, the reason why I said the connection is Pillsbury bought his company at about the same time they bought Souverain Winery. And they were going to be a factor in the wine business, our own local Pillsbury company. But then they discovered the tied house laws, and that means you couldn't. The houses couldn't be tied together, and they had a chain of restaurants that served liquor, so they had to get out of the wine business. But then Alexis Lachine, who was referred to as the Pope of Wine, often came to Minneapolis several times a year in the early days. And, and in the early days, wine societies began to form uh, that concentrated on wines from different areas around the world, California, Burgundy, France, Bordeaux, France, etc., German wine societies, etc. Then they really helped enhance the image of wine around uh, the, the metro area here. And as I say, Mondavi was a pioneer, uh, Robert had a fight with his family in the 1968. He decided California could compete in the world market. And at the time, that was a very, very novel idea. No one else uh, would get into that kind of idea that California wines could compete globally. No, I mean, there's Burgundy, there's Bordeaux, and Chianti, etc. They couldn't do that. Well, he proved them wrong. And then in Paris in 1976. Now, bear in mind, that's only eight years after Mondavi started his own winery. Uh, the Parisians, who always fancied their wine the very finest in the world, held a test in a school in a wine bar in Paris, and all the wines that won were American. Huh. And, uh, of course, uh, everybody began to believe we could do that. And yet, the wine evolution has been remarkable. You know, when I was first starting to go into restaurants, you had only had Matus and Lancers, uh, and they were both rosés and nothing else. Then it became the fad of Cold Duck, uh, Lambrusco, White Zinfandel, uh, wine coolers, Bartles and James wine coolers. You know, those started in the 80s. And the good news about that is it got everybody acquainted with wine, and progressively, if you noticed, as I said, all those wines, yeah. they're getting drier all the time oh, good point. until White Zinfandel comes out. And there you go. There's a whole new thing. And the White Zinfandels were, of course, ten times drier than Lambrusco or Cold Duck, etc. And the evolution continues. And so today, you know, not only in this country, but the whole world has benefited uh, Spain, Italy, or they're what they used to call plunk, their regional wines out in the country that were never very good, all of a sudden are being handled the right way with the right technology and schooled vintners instead of just grandpa drinking yeah. his old red wine. Yeah, right. And it's changed the entire wine business to what it is today. And it is a remarkable business today. I mean, there's literally every single state in the United States has a bonded winery in them. 
all 50 states, which is hard to believe when you think about Alaska and Hawaii. Jack, but, we're almost out of time. Oh. I wanted to tell folks that the locally owned Haskells will serve you well if you want to pick up on whatever Jack talks about. Get to Haskells. Indeed. I just get carried away here. Sorry about that. The Haskells is your holiday gift headquarters. Our holiday 28 pages of wonderful gift ideas. Please stop in. They can pair any wine with any dish, and you know, they'll pick a wine that won't break the bank. There's a Haskell's near you where you can save big dollars on Saturday and on wines. Bloomington, Chanhassen, Haskell's and Excelsior, Faribault, Maple Grove, a super seller up there is not to be missed. In downtown Minneapolis, there's free parking. Haskell's at Ridgedale, Plymouth, St. Paul's Highland Village, Stillwater, White Bear Lake, and Woodbury, too. And if you can't come into Haskell's, go to Haskell's.com or WCCO.com slash wine. It'll take you right to the Haskell's website where you can peruse our holiday catalog with lots of great gift ideas. Thank you so much, Jack. Let's talk next week if you can. I'll look forward to it. Thank you, Jack.